Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hi, I'm Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford Said Business School. This is Episode 9, Media, Misinformation, and Trust. In terms of crisis, people turn to the media for information that they can trust. What responsibilities do old and new media organizations have to address the problem of junk news spreading rapidly? How can businesses earn trust in a climate of confusion, uncertainty, and misinformation? On our panel today are Oxford Said scholars Rachel Botsman, who's a trust fellow here at the Business School, Dr. Alex Connick, a fellow in management practice, and Professor Phil Howard, Director of the Oxford Internet Institute. Chairing the discussion is Professor Andrew Stephen, L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and our Associate Dean of Research. And I'll go to Phil first as a deep expert on misinformation. What is happening at the moment with respect to misinformation around COVID-19? That's a a great question. To some degree, everything we know about what's happening uh, comes when we analyze social media data. Most of the misinformation is coming from social media, and most of it is coming from state-backed news agencies, mostly from the Russian government and the Chinese government. So, so how is this being politicized? So, so it's coming from Russia and China, but what are they doing? Well, their, their messaging is, is about trust. And uh, the goal of these communications is to try to undermine our trust in our own public institutions and our own democracies. So there's, there's two or three big messages. The first is that uh, leaders, political leaders and democracies aren't serving us well. They're making poor decisions and uh, they're not able to protect the population. Uh, then there's trust messaging around our, our healthcare providers, right? Uh, the Russians and Chinese media machines would prefer to have us diminished our trust in our doctors. And there's also this message that they, authoritarian regimes, are the most trustworthy. They say they're leading the science. Uh, they're on the fastest route to providing a cure. And uh, they're providing aid to democracies to help us with the struggle that we're facing. So Rachel is an expert on trust. Uh, I guess this is eroding all sorts of public trust in all sorts of institutions, but, but how, how do you see it? I think one of the things that's important to remember uh, when you look at photos of a crisis and you look at organizations like the Red Cross, when they go in, they take food, they take water, they set up shelter, but they often offer people hand-cranked radios. So information is life or death in these situations. And I think we shouldn't forget that that's what is at stake, that we need information as much as food and water in a time of crisis. And when water becomes contaminated, it's toxic. When information becomes contaminated, it can literally harm people. So one of the things that is really difficult in a crisis in a time of uncertainty is that we as human beings will look for any kind of information that will reduce the unknown for us, that will give us a feeling of control. And this is a nightmare in terms of the information that comes through to us, even if we're looking at trustworthy news sources. So one of the most powerful things 
that we actually need to do is rather than pointing at institutions or pointing at social media or pointing at celebrities and influencers, uh, pointing at Russia and China, and all these things are huge problems that we need to solve. The most powerful place to start is with ourselves, is to actually ask, where are we responding to information? How are we emotionally reacting? What times of day? Where, which news sources do we go to? What news stories are we looking for? So I know with myself pers personally, um, I like millions of parents are honestly desperate for my children to go back to school. And I, I think about all the children around the world that really do need to go back to school. So I will look for any information that is about the June the 1st deadline in them returning to school. That's my desirability bias to kick in. So I think the place to start is actually by thinking about your own behaviors and how you are responding to information and understanding that your body and mind needs good information as much as it needs food, water and shelter right now. And so Alex, the, 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 the broader media therefore has a role to play in this as well, because I, I think, you know, what Phil's talking about is where this is coming from and these sort of state actors uh, and state-backed media providing that. And then Rachel's talking about how we process this individually and kind of the, the psychological consequences. And then in, in the middle of all of this, I suppose, is I guess what we could call the, um, the independent media or the, the non-state-backed um, media. So wh where do they fit into this? Because, you know, they might create news stories about misinformation. Uh, you and I were talking just the other day, for instance, about um, pieces on, on shows that have sort of trying to, you know, uncover misinformation, but at the same time, they're perhaps per perpetuating this doubt or uncertainty that, that Rachel is talking about. So how does this all kind of fit together with the, with the conventional media? Well, first of all, very briefly, the state media itself, you know, if you split that into three, um, in the UK, for example, you've got the government briefings, the, uh, you've got um, the BBC, which I know is not strictly state media, but I think many would perceive it as such. And finally, you've got the Ofcom, which is the media regulator, which is actually now putting out weekly reports on disinformation in an attempt to kind of level the landscape. But in terms of the non-state media, there's actually been, I think, quite a, a rather interesting reshaping of the way the non-state media interplays with society over the last couple of years already, or perhaps since 2016. So, um, you know, one of the big new players we've seen is the, the rise of the charity fact checker. So you have full fact, which is a sort of genuine public service presenting, you know, in a clear fashion, debunking of all kinds of nonsense conspiracy theories, you know, for example, around the supposed link between 5G, the telecoms technology and coronavirus. So that's a new sector. Secondly, you're seeing the state engaging with social media channels. So for example, it's not accidental that Peter Henahan, who is the head of the digital unit at number 10 Downing Street, the UK where the prime minister's based, um, is former head of PR at both Buzzfeed and the Lad Bible, which are both huge social channels. And in fact, they've allowed questions from both Buzzfeed and the Lad Bible at the daily press briefings. So that's a new player in the non-state media. Um, the digital media are doing a pretty good job as well. So for example, Wires magazine has done quite a lot of kind of point by point takedowns of kind of some of the more nutty conspiracy theories in quite a kind of mechanistic and detailed way. And then actually, to be fair, the traditional media has done too. So you've seen, for example, Mail Online, which is a very traditional newspaper, the Daily Mail, but which has a huge global footprint, has been quite instrumental in, for example, taking on a presenter of a channel in the UK, ITV, who said that it suited the suited the state to, um, to not, not allow rumors about the supposed link between coronavirus and whatever. Uh, and, and the Daily Mail did quite a good takedown of him. And then the Times has done quite good historical perspectives where they've looked back to the 17th century and the Great Plague in 1665 and found analogies there where the state was having to take on some quite wild and crazy rumors at that point. 
So I think there is a bit of a reshaping, actually, of the, of the non-state media and, and a sort of stepping up, if you like, of the state media and taking on what is quite a big across-the-board phenomenon. And don't forget, some of the misinformation has actually come from the very top of states. So, for example, Donald Trump saying, you know, of um, the, the malaria drug, you know, why don't you just take it? What, what do you have to lose? And so when you're, dealing with, when you're dealing with misinformation coming from the very top of one of the most powerful countries on earth, it's very important that the non-state media, as well as the state media, gets stuck in. Which then kind of, I think, brings us back to Phil in thinking about approaches to tackle this. Because I guess Rachel's saying, well, we need to be aware of this as people and think about it from that sort of bottom-up approach, I suppose. And Alex, you're talking about sort of the, the various entities within the media industry and, and their responsibilities. I guess two other uh, players in this space, at least two other players in this space, are governments and the uh, social media platforms themselves. So, so Phil, what's... What's happening in that sort of realm? Um, you know, I know you work with the UK government, for example, and have recently been speaking with them. So maybe that's, that's where we could begin. Certainly. I think, um, I think your instinct is right. There's, there's a balance. We all need to be better uh, at consuming information and smarter before we share it. Uh, I think there is also, though, a structural problem in that the social media firms serve up misinformation in the key days before people vote or the key days when they're trying to learn about what the government has said about public health policy. And that misinformation undermines our trust that the stores will be open and the schools will reopen. Uh, so good, consistent, clear messaging has to come from the top. It has to come from a credible source. And we shouldn't have information structures that serve up the junk to us when we, when we need the high quality information. So, you know, there's several of us who are arguing that the best thing that can help address this, inoculate us against misinformation, is a better supply of data, both from the social media firms and from government itself, right? Keeping data open, in part, helps us all see what's going on, track the misinformation, and, and stifle it when we spot it. So I want to talk a bit more about the, the social platforms as well. I think we're all aware of the, the, just the, the amount of of posting coming into, you know, the likes of Facebook and Twitter and everything else. It's very, very, very hard to sort of police that. What, what's your take, Phil, on, on, you know, if you go into Twitter, for example, they've got the, the special sort of COVID-19 area. Facebook's got that very prominent as well, and others too, in terms of sort of trying to signal, hey, here's a, here's a sort of a vetted area um, on our platform. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I can see that as useful, but on the other hand, does it, does it actually make users doubt, kind of back to what Rachel was saying, doubt everything else in the feed if only certain stuff is being called out as, as accurate. And what you find in there typically is stuff from uh, news media sources. So is that, is that how I actually think, I actually think the firms are doing better. They're doing more. They're being more creative than they ever had with any of the political issues over the last four years. So now the average person searching on YouTube will find credible health information from professional news organizations. They won't see a lot of junk. They won't see stuff from uh, the WHO or the, profes- you know, the NHS, but they'll see professional news. Twitter and Facebook are doing a slightly better job at taking down junk. The challenge, though, is that there's always going to be an audience for misinformation. There's a small segment of the population between a quarter and a third that looks for this stuff and will share it. They, we, we want to find conspiracies. Uh, actually, we want to find the truth. And for many of us, that means trying to find a sensationalist story or an extreme story that seems to bear some inside information. Uh, And so, you know, we're sort of, we have these cognitive biases and some of us like to chase that misinformation and share it. 
So on that, Rachel, let's, let's come back to kind of what you were saying before, which is very much about the psychology of all of this at, at the individual level. How do we then reconcile this, this desire to reduce uncertainty, um, to not have doubt with what Phil was just saying in terms of some of us actually might be seeking out this type of information and, and, and be willing to share it? So many different dimensions to this, but um, I think part of what actually fuels our appetite and um, amplifies the vacuum, the emotional vacuum that often misinformation and conspiracy theories uh, fill is when we don't feel like we're receiving enough information from government and credible organizations. So we tend to talk about misinformation, information overload, but uh, what can actually drive people to seek information, particularly from celebrities and, and social media influencers, is when they don't think they're being told the truth or when they think that information is being withheld from them. And I know this is different um, from all over the world, but if you look at the studies in terms of people's confidence in the government, which is essentially trust, do I have confidence in the unknown, what they're doing, what I can't see? A lot of the distrust is actually coming from an information problem. I don't have enough information around the exit plan. I don't have enough information around testing and vaccines. So I think that void is also what is driving people towards conspiracy theories. And what people will be pulled towards um, is very different. So I thought it was really interesting that um, one of the biggest fake news stories uh, over the last couple of weeks was the dolphin in the Venice Canal. Now, I have to admit, I thought that was true. And I'm embarrassed to say that now. I don't know if you saw the image, um, but it, of course it was fake news. And I think, well, why did I think that was true for the moment? Well, it's hope, right? We will, we will latch onto information that fuels our fears, but also gives us some glimmer of hope. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the information void that many people are feeling from governments and credible institutions and organizations. And therefore they're filling that gap. They're filling that vacuum with emotions and misinformation and going to less trustworthy sources. So I want to, I want to come back to sort of that theme in, in a minute to, to pick up on like, where do, what, what do we do about this? But, but first, that's why we're talking about conspiracy theories. Uh, Alex, I want to come to you because I know you've been looking quite in quite a lot of detail at the 5G conspiracy. So, so do you want to unpack that a bit for us? The 5G um, kind of conspiracy theories and their conflation with coronavirus are actually the perfect summary of everything we've already talked about. So, for instance, there's been a lot of coverage on Russia's RT channel of 5G and its supposed um, potential risks, which I think would, would fit quite well with Phil's um, proposition that there have been state-backed um, actors getting involved in trying to undermine trust. And the, the theory goes that it's nothing more sophisticated than Russia wanting to catch up on 5G and therefore trying to slow it down in the West. I can't, I can't, I can't substantiate that. You've had you know, non-state media in the UK, for example, you had a TV channel in, in, in London, a local TV channel, air an 80-minute interview with a well-known conspiracy theorist called David Icke, which came, which came up with all sorts of tie-ups between coronavirus and 5G. And what's interesting is there's been quite a lot of good dissections of this, for example, by Wired and Spiked and others. And what they found is that there's a whole, if you like, viral legacy of this story, these two stories being conflated, which absolutely substantiates all everything that we've so far talked about, about the way this material propagates around the internet. And it's, it's everywhere from right-wing talk show hosts in America to even bots. And I think Phil said a fantastic thing in, in Parliament in the UK this week, where you mentioned that 
that celebrity super spreaders were the way that bots translated their fake news from conversations with each other into the mainstream. And that what's happened with 5G and coronavirus is that two essentially incorrect sets of theories have coalesced into a sort of super incorrect collation of theories, you know, right down to the point that conspiracy theorists on Facebook claim the new 20 pound note features a designed in preview of both 5G and coronavirus in the actual graphic design of it. You know, the whole thing is some kind of preconceived conspiracy. So I think that the, the tie up between 5G and coronavirus is um, illustration, if you like, of the wider problem, which is this propagation of essentially nonsensical, but nonetheless compelling, because they provide answers in the way that Rachel mentioned, versions of history, because every, every secure version is better than the real situation, which is, of course, insecurity and lack of full knowledge. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think back to what you've all been saying is interesting here. If we think of the sort of the psychology and sociology of information sharing more broadly, there's, there's a host of reasons why people might want to transmit a message to, to someone else. And one of them is novelty, right? And, and so I think filling that void uh, aspect you were talking about, Rachel, is, is one of them. And, and then bring, you know, purportedly novel information that is very topical, very relevant, uh, given we're all very, very focused on something very salient in coronavirus at the moment. And then you sort of have that almost perfect storm for increasing you know, what I would call sort of social transmission probabilities, mm. uh, and then amplify that with social media and then the news media pick it up and celebrities and influencers and everyone else, um, you really do have a fertile ground for, for rapid dissemination of misinformation here. And then, Phil, I want to ask you, though, about the role of bots in all of this, um, because that's another dimension altogether. And Alex has sort of alluded to what you've been saying around bots as well. Um, so perhaps you could just fill us in a little bit more on how that fits in here too. Certainly, certainly. I, I've just finished a book uh, on the problem of where misinformation comes from and why it disseminates. And I called the book Lie Machines because so much of the, the work of dissemination happens through algorithms. Um, these are algorithms that uh, know a little bit of your credit history and know some of your social media content and can purposefully choose content to push to you. Uh, depending on the platforms, uh, other people can add their own bots, right? So you can compose a, a chunk of text that whenever somebody tweets about COVID will respond with a COVID. And, and as Rachel said, the myths about coronavirus are themselves deadly. So in this case, we have uh, little chunks of code automation that actually perpetuate the misinformation and help get to the, the people who are more likely, more susceptible to it, more likely to believe it. I think, I think, Angie, if I might jump in, I think it's what's interesting here. We have a kind of perfect storm of network theory, since you mentioned it, mm -hmm. in the sense that a virus obviously is best analyzed through a kind of textbook network theory. And it's very, very interesting if you're teaching, as I'm sure we all are at Oxford, you know, courses which features like network theory, how much of it relates across from viral marketing and, and, and into medical viral study. So if you've got a virus network theory, you've got the information spreading network theory, and then you've got 5G, which actually is a network. So you've got kind of the perfect storm of networking that's being played out here. And of course, the network is the perfect mechanism of transmission. And actually, the government itself in the UK put out an um, advert today pointing out that if you um, go on WhatsApp and share a theory of what, whatever kind to your, to your 20 WhatsApp pals, and they each do that, then you're at three and a half million people, you know, and, and that, that's network in operation, isn't it? And it's the same with the super spreaders in the virus. So it's a, it's, it's a, if it wasn't so awful, this would be the perfect intellectual case study in networking. We're going to switch now to the leadership perspective and thinking about solutions with some practical guidance for business leaders. But first, 
Rachel Botsman has often spoken about trust as something that you earn. So if people are intrinsically motivated to latch onto information because they need it, yet we're in an era of erosion of trust, how does she think that institutions can re-earn trust? Well, I think the role of trustworthy leaders has, has never been more important than ever before. And I really have an allergic reaction to the language of, of building trust or how do I build trust? Because it is this idea that you have to be given trust and therefore you have to demonstrate you're trustworthy. And it's not like a fixed asset that can be managed. It's a very continuous um, process. One thing that I find fascinating and, and I'm not usually one for sort of gender stereotypes is why we're responding to female leaders in this crisis. So if you look at Merkel, if you look at Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, if you look at, I've forgotten the Danish prime minister's name, I can only remember her first name, prime minister of Norway, these are all women. And why does it feel like they are cutting through? Why are the uh, research studies showing that confidence in those governments with female leadership is higher than um, governments with male leadership. And I usually don't like this gender stereotype, but I think there is a learning there. And when you look at their communications, they are calm, they are consistent, and they are confident. And so I think what we're seeing is this, this idea that empathy and strength can go hand in hand. And this is so important when it comes to trust. Whereas I think some institutions and some forms of male leadership and communication, they tend to sort of overemphasize the confidence over the competence right now. Um, so I think there is something to look at and to learn from why we are connecting to many female leaders and why there is a correlation, why trust and faith in those governments and confidence to do the right thing right now and to lead us through the crisis is higher generally than governments uh, with male leadership. So I can't underestimate in terms of trustworthiness, the importance of consistency right now. And this is where I would criticize the UK government. Uh, we have inconsistency in the voices delivering the information. So that's a problem. Like every night we see a different figure ahead up there. Um, we have inconsistency when we can expect to receive the information, inconsistency in the way the information is packaged, and that is terrible for trust. So how we fix consistency issues, how we fix clarity uh, issues, and how institutions can really take that empathy and strength that we're starting to see we're seeing in many of these female leaders, I think there is a lot of lessons to be learned there. And I'm just going to go to an audience question now, which is actually very, very similar to what I was going to ask you, Alex. Um, and that this comes from Sandra in Brisbane, Australia, which happens to be my hometown. So it, it, what, how would a business leader, though, communicate this? So, so I think Rachel's talking about sort of governance. But what about if I'm running a business and, you know, I'm aware that there's this trust issue around misinformation in sort of the, the, the general public? Do I have a role to play? Yeah, thanks, Sandra. And what a, how lucky you are to live in Brisbane. Um, first, you know, be there and be in the conversation. You know, it's in the enlightened self-interest of business leaders to communicate on wider societal issues. And, you know, Milton Friedman's argument that the only purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder value is fully 50 years ago now. 
you know, it's another era, another age. And, and in fact, the ESG focus, which is very core to Saeed, you know, um, um, environment, social governance, is absolutely vital. And it's actually the first thing we do in the marketing course. So, so be there because it's the right thing to do. Actually, companies that have strong ESG outperform and results. There's lots of research, including here at Oxford, to, to substantiate that. And actually, companies that do well on ESG but are more investable as well. So that's why. In terms of what you should do, I think there are three things. Get the advertising right, get the public information right, and get the PR right. So in terms of the advertising, actually, I think many companies are getting it badly wrong at the moment. And actually, there's quite a lot of quite funny sort of mashups of videos where, where they're essentially showing that every American corporation from Federal Express to Uber to Budweiser and Samsung, I know it's Korean, have made pretty much exactly the same advert, which kind of starts with mawkish piano music, then, then goes into a quiet sequence of people at home sort of putting their thumbs on Zoom and then ends up with a slightly more empowering sequence. And they're, they're, all, sort of, they're all sort of coming together and... Uh, and, and they're not really working. And, and there's that, you know, given that there's what Martin Sorrell called a Darwinian color of media underway, which is that, you know, the whole advertising groups and whole, whole creative media companies are getting slashed and advertising budgets are up to 50% down. Um, the, the sort of corporate America and the corporate world need to do better than that. So the second thing is get the public information right. And I think on that front, companies are doing really well. So actually, when Trump came out with his sort of slightly veiled um, suggestion that people might try in, ingesting bleach, um, it was it was the make it was Reckitt Bancuzzi who came out with the makers of Dettol who came out and said you know you really don't want to do that and their their statements were actually um, uh, probably better worded than those of the actual U.S. government at the time and it full fact which is UK charity sort of backed them up on that and said the industry was doing a good job so stick to them get the public information right and finally get the PR right and I'd say it's been a mixed story on getting the PR right. So some people have done really well, like Gilead, for example, the American pharma company, you know, have actually communicated quite well around the doubt around some of the early trials on their, um, their Remsdivir drug. You know, so they've done an excellent job, but some corporations have been absolutely tone deaf. I think Warren Buffett saying at his um, shareholder meeting that um, he couldn't find anywhere to spend his cash, couldn't find anyone to, anything to invest in, was probably the wrong choice of words at a situation when there wasn't enough PPE equipment in America you know, for the healthcare workers who are on the front line. I think that Richard Branson, a tax exile, asking for funding from the UK government for Virgin Atlantic probably wasn't the right play either. So, you know, you know get your PR right, don't be tone deaf, be aware of the wider perspective on what it is that you're saying and the environment you're saying it in. So I'm going to go to another question here. Thanks, Alex. I'll direct this one to you, Phil. It's about to the role of government again. So this is from Lucian in South Africa. So he's saying South Africa's government has passed a COVID-19 law prohibiting the publication of fake news. Um, and, and as far as he's aware, we don't have that here in the UK or other parts of the world. So, so what's your view on that in terms of it being a, a feasible solution? Thank you for your question, Lucian. I, I do not think governments should regulate news output. And so there's a range of other better solutions that I would play with before getting government into the business of, of checking news content. It's pretty clear we all need better information habits. We should look at something before we forward it. And uh, we shouldn't be following COVID misinformation or, or even COVID as a topic uh, addictively, right? We need a break, our own mental breaks from health news. Otherwise you get caught in the downward spiral. That said, I do think that social media firms could have a radical rebuild. Uh, at the moment, they are designed to promote content that is controversial and sensational and all caps, you know, titles in all caps. That's the stuff that circulates. And government probably should have a role in guiding social media firms towards better behavior, building for consensus, right? Helping good stories circulate further, uh, following on with more good political speech 
is going to be a better solution than, than clamping down with, with censorship mechanisms. Some more questions actually from the audience. Um, this one, I'm going to take another one from Australia. Um, this one's from Shan in Sydney. Um, and I, this one's for you, Phil. Uh, so if the government doesn't regulate fake news, what is the solution uh, as, as this is doing a lot of harm? Well, there's a couple of ways to get the right solution. I think um, some of the research that we've done at the Oxford Internet Institute shows that when scientists can communicate their findings with a good story, they have much more impact than if they just publish in, the, in a, an academic journal. And scientists, especially around climate change, for example, are getting much better at telling compelling stories about the adventure of research and the importance of the findings. And so I imagine that will be transportable to health, right? If, if, health, research want to tell, if health researchers want to tell the story of searching for a cure, of the late hours burning the candle at both ends, that's going to be the, 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 the narrative of adventure that will keep us hooked on the journey towards finding a cure. That, that storytelling is going to be very important. I think one of the real challenges, especially for business leaders, is going to be around communicating how they are treating their own employees. Mm -hmm. So some of the super clusters uh, that are popping up in the United States are popping up because large firms have made their employees uh, go back to do low-wage labor. Um, and there's been a sector of the economy, the gig economy, that's just been decimated. Um, by this and this uh, and there's a range of workers who simply don't have the protections that uh, those who work for major firms do. So leadership, business leadership not only has to figure out how to contribute to public life with sane, sensible recommendations and messaging, but demonstrating that they can take care of their own staff and their own workforces is going to be is going to be vital. Alex, do you have something to add to that? No, I thought I thought I thought Phil Phil said it brilliantly. I thought I think if I could just sort of pick up on that as a sort of wider commentary on the upending of of capitalism in a way. So 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 we, this has been a populist uprising, and the kind of social pyramid is turned upside down. It's kind of it's been a kind of media version of 1789 or 1917 in the sense that that celebrities have had a very bad war. You know, you look at, you know, Victoria Beckham, for example, and the sort of, or David Geffen with the sort of beautiful drone shot of his yacht in the British Virgin Islands, posting it on Instagram and then being surprised at how badly that went down around the world. And the new heroes are the bin men, the nurses, the, the retail workers, the workers in the Amazon factories and so forth. And I think, I think if you combine that with the fact that we've become the kind of um, binge, binge viewing, miniseries viewing, you know, population who are sort of Netflix junkies, actually feels right that the, possibly there is a really interesting storytelling opportunity around singling out some of those core workers in society who've now become the, the absolute pivot of our, of our world. So for example, in the UK, while celebrities haven't done very well, um, Captain Tom, a hundred year old veteran of D-Day, um, walked around his own garden and raised 30 million pounds. And so there, there's an emotive story that tells a much wider story, but through the prism of one individual. So I think if I were in the storytelling business for government, for example, at the moment, I would be looking for more stories like that. And I'd be looking to tell them, as Phil suggests, in a kind of sequential, tr dramatic, in-depth, mini-series way that tracked, you know, the finding of a virus in, of, a, of a vaccine in Oxford over a period of months or what have you. And that's actually probably more likely to address the story long term and, 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 and address the false rumours and the misinformation than instant hits on Facebook or, or Twitter. 
Thanks. And, and uh, another audience question here, and, and kind of open this up to, to any of you, actually. It's, um, and apologies if I mispronounce your name, Masizi. Has anyone considered how credible information spreads as quickly as fake news does? Uh, or does it take too much effort to, to disseminate credible info? So I guess sort of the different rates of, of diffusion. Any insights on that? Well, once it's caught, if a social media firm allows us to flag it, users can flag it and then there's algorithms and there's teams of people who sit there and, and expect the comment and try to remove it. So for the most part, uh, small amounts of credible information well expressed will travel farther, will last longer and will stay in the public mind um, much longer, much, in a much more constructive way than a, a, even the tastiest bit of junk news. And maybe I could jump in. I used to work on one of the big social channels. And, and one of the interesting thing, what sort of grammatical issues that we discovered was that if you, if you post as a question, you will naturally create more engagement. And also if you post as the answer to an implicit question, you will also get more engagement. So I think a lot of it's actually, um, again, as Phil said, in the phraseology of these things, the kind of shouty headlines and what have you, but it's like, do you want to know the answer to why coronavirus has happened is obviously a question and it naturally becomes more shareable because people, people are naturally will engage with that. So I think there's quite a lot that we can learn about the, the actual grammar of how social media works. And you know, that we, at the time we were doing quite a lot of analysis of what were called trigrams, which is combinations of three words and how by combining words in different orders and different, different grammatical constructs, you would actually create quite different um, network dynamics in terms of how viral stuff would go. And I'm sure that the intelligence agencies, for example, when they were looking at ISIS, were certainly engaged with such things as to how to actually construct that in a very sort of mechanistic way, how to put together posts in such a way that they would become either shareable or, or, or um, credible. And on that note, Alex, I think this is where media organizations could do a lot better in terms of when we find a credible meme that sticks. So if you talk to anyone in America, they'll go, you know, flat on the curve people, like that's, that's the metaphor that has stuck. That's why they're staying home. And so if all credible information around flattening the curve actually carried that headline, we'd gravitate towards that. So I think one of the problems is that uh, credible information is so fractured in the messaging, whereas conspiracy theories tend to carry the same headline, um, which is a real problem. You know, COVID was made in the lab. COVID is the cause of 5G. So how we actually create mm -hmm. cohesion around the messaging of credible information, I think, is a real media challenge. And I think what's, what's interesting is that, of course, the, the, the far right and the conspiracy theorists in general do have a coherent worldview. Now, you might disagree with it, uh, and you might disagree with every facet of it, but if you listen to Russ Lim Limbaugh or, 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 you know, saying that the reason COVID-19 is called COVID-19 is because uh, it's the 19th coronavirus, which is factually incorrect, as it was actually called that because it was 2019, um, you know, everything that he says or everything that David Icke says fits together in a coherent worldview. And I think, Rachel, when you alluded to the female leaders being better than the male leaders at all of this, part of that is because they have constructed credible, holistic, alternative worldviews that we can subscribe to in the way that Angela Merkel with her PhD in nuclear right. chemistry or whatever it is, has done so effectively. Um, so, so I think this sort of global answer to how we take on misinformation is by creating our own coherent global worldview into which any given facet of information will seamlessly fit. Yeah, and I, th and I think, you know, Alex, you alluded to this as well, but I think if we think about, you know, for, for you and I as people in, you know, who work in marketing, if we think about you know, exactly the things you were talking about in some sense, the grammar of social media or what gets attention in a news feed, 
um, you know, a lot of research in, in industry with sort of likes of Facebook and, and Google um, and Twitter, as well as, you know, our own work, um, you know, looks at this, you know, what, what gets people to actually pay attention to, for example, a brand's post in, in, in a newsfeed. Well, it's those very aspects about attention grabbing that are being used by actors uh, who are seeking to disseminate misinformation. And interestingly, governments and corporations often don't use some of those elements in their playbooks. And, and a key one that we found in our research is actually the use for social media is the use of an informal tone. You know, basically the advice we always give to companies is speak, you know, in a tone of voice uh, that's colloquial, that's social, you know, the social in social media actually does mean something. It's not just another, another um, digital platform. So speak yeah. like it's people talking to people, which tends to be more informal, more colloquial, um, you know, not quite as polished, not maybe messages as clear, because that perhaps ironically uh, can be what breaks through and gets attention because it actually fits in with everything else cognitively that you're processing from your newsfeed. And so if you think about what governments do, just to, to, to pick on, on government messaging, it tends to be very official, very serious. Uh, and, and there are obviously many good reasons for that, but it, it's not always the case in a social media environment that that formality, that sort of very official looking video and chief medical officer here in the UK, very serious looking gentleman staring into a camera, it's not clear that it actually gives that high level of credibility in a social media environment. It might be in a different media environment. And so I think there's a lot that organizations as well as governments and anyone else seeking to spread the correct information need to kind of look into in the marketing and the advertising world because they've been doing this for a long time to figure out how to best communicate and, and get attention in digital channels which we wouldn't normally think about, particularly in sort of formal government uh, aspects. So I think that's just another sort of build on what you were saying, Alex. I want to come, though, to another uh, question from the, from the audience. This one is coming uh, from Anna, who's in uh, Torino in Italy, and asking just actually, do we have any good examples uh, we can share from either public bodies or companies uh, that are sort of getting it right in this low trust confusion environment? Um, with their with their messaging or advertising, um, Rachel, perhaps you might have some examples first. Yeah, I mean, just um, just before I answer that question, I think um, you raised something really, and this I think relates actually to what governments and companies need to be doing. I'd like us to identify sort of three things people are looking for in misinformation. So we're trying to understand the cause. We're trying to understand the endpoint, and we're trying to understand the cure and there might be more added to that list but i think if we could actually get to the root cause of what people are seeking from these conspiracy theories and pummel credible information against those targets we could be more strategic in the information that we're disseminating um sorry i digress so getting back to best practice examples you know i think it's really interesting uh, that there are more examples uh, coming from public leadership than there are from corporate leadership. So the first thing, thing that actually strikes me is where is the voice in financial services? I can't point to a best practice in, in financial services. Where I think we're seeing some stellar leadership is if you look at um, Hilton um, and um, eBay, even companies like Airbnb. And what's really interesting about these companies is it's solution first, right? So they are legacy systems and infrastructures are not getting in the way of the way that they can redeploy assets and solve a problem. 
So they haven't come out with the communications campaign first. They said, right, maybe we can provide housing for vulnerable workers. Uh, maybe we can support education in a significant way with eBay. How can we support microfinancing and small business loans? And they've redeployed their assets and come up with a new form of value and, and solving a real need. And then the communication follows. So I think it's actually um, BrewDog. Um, so the company that was a gin company and is now making ha hand sanitizer, right? It wasn't a communication campaign, it was solution first. So that's where I would actually look is, is companies that are being incredibly innovative in the way that they take, in some instances, the idling capacity that's now in their businesses and redeploying their assets to actually solve a really big human problem. Because we can't forget that this is a human crisis. I mean, I know it, it, it is a crisis caused by a disease, but this is a human crisis. So the companies with the best practice examples, they are providing real solutions to human needs. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. The, the key is absolutely that relatability. So, you know, I think that's one thing, but I want to sort of pivot now a little bit um, because we're, we're going to be out of time soon just to, to think more about some of those things that, that we could encourage leaders to do. And I mean, I know there's been a very um, wide ranging conversation with lots of different stakeholders, but if we again, bring it back down to, to sort of the, um, the, the business constituency, what else should, should people be doing in their organizations with their teams, with their coworkers, with their customers? Alex, perhaps we'll, we'll start with you and, and then go to Rachel and then Phil. Well, I, I think that there's a real opportunity here. If you think about, if you think about sort of 2015, 16, it's kind of the apogee of misinformation when you had the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign and Cambridge Analytica and the bots that Phil's friends, the bots and so, and so forth. And, and we're still seeing the echoes of that in 2019, 20. But what's different about this period from that period and the intervening period actually, is that that was the period of relativism when nobody believed in facts and nobody believed in experts and even government ministers in the UK and in the US said that, flipped quite openly said they didn't believe in experts. And now that's not the case. Now people do believe in experts and we're now in the era of substance. I've seen more university professors on the news and on TV in general in the last month than I've seen the rest of my life combined, I think. And so the word authenticity, which had been become a sort of horrible maligned word, which basically meant I actually walked up the mountain, which I took my the Instagram picture of myself on the top of, therefore I'm authentic, has now become something much more meaningful, mm. which means it's mm -hmm. become not just a question of photoshopping yourself in, but it's, it's a question of actually having the substance to be in the conversation at all. And I think if I was sat, if I am sat at some board meetings, you know, with big, big, cheeses in the corporate world. And I would always say, you know, now is the time to be there with the substance, to be there with the real in-depth facts and the real delivery. Forget about the flim flam, forget about the celebrity spokesman, forget about the, you know, the quick, quick shoot with the celebrity begging for money, whatever like that. Forget about all of that. People don't want that. People want facts, substance, and real authenticity of a kind that really wasn't present in the past five years. Hmm. I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, you know, there's two fundamental questions that, that boards need to be able to answer, which is when we look back, whether it be in two, three, five years time, whoever knows what the endpoint is, the question that every company, whether it be an employee or an external stakeholder will ask is, what did you do during COVID-19? What did you do during COVID-19? And if you do not have an answer for that, a very clear answer, I think you'll become irrelevant. I mean, it is going to become make or break. And the second thing is a feeling, and it goes back to something Phil was talking about with your own employees, that you genuinely care. 
I mean, I know this sounds so obvious, but where we're seeing many businesses get communication wrong, both internally and externally, is there is still this massive disconnect between those in leadership and the rest of the organization. And this feeling that the people in leadership will be okay, and then you'll be followed and, and good luck to the rest of you. So how do you communicate that you care and that your intentions in leadership are aligned with the rest of the organization because so much of our response through a lens of trust comes down to intentions and motives. If we do not believe the intentions and motives of the company, whether it be in a corporate communications campaign or something a leader is saying to employees, that further arose trust. So what did we do in COVID-19 and are we proud of it? Do people feel like we genuinely care and can we honestly say that our intentions and motives as a leadership team are aligned with the rest of our employees and society as a whole? They will be the three things I would be focusing on. And Phil? I, I like the direction of all these ideas. I like um, Rachel's notion that telling local stories will help make, uh, help make compelling arguments that you, you are being constructive, you are doing good things. And I, I agree, take care of your staff first. Um, any big picture messaging about the some vacant future is just going to be empty if uh, the story gets out that you're not able to take care of your staff they're working in difficult conditions and working in a way that uh, perpetuates the the public health crisis so taking care of staff first and foremost and then customers and that may mean taking a hit in the business but uh, it will be even bigger hits uh, you'll seem even more disingenuous if if a story gets out that you're not able to protect your staff, take care of staff and tell local stories. My thanks to Professor Phil Howard, Rachel Botsman, Dr. Alex Connick, and Professor Andrew Stephen. I'm Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Listen, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about Leadership in Extraordinary Times, please visit oxfordanswers.org.